Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. I'll be joined by Hugh Aiken, the author of Picasso's War. It tells the story of how New York City slowly, eventually, came to embrace both European modernism and the art of Pablo Picasso. Aiken's book starts with John Quinn, a white shoe attorney with a yen for progressive literature and art. It follows Quinn's involvement and influence across New York and Europe, through the Armory Show, Alfred Barr, and more. It's full of original research, new angles that give life to once ossified narratives, and bright, well-paced prose. It's available on both IndieBound and Amazon. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, artist Jordan Weber. But first, Hugh Aiken, after the break. Support comes from the Getty Villa, presenting a new outdoor theater production under the stars of Sophocles' classic play, Oedipus. Performed in American Sign Language and spoken English by Los Angeles' Tony Award-winning Deaf West Theater, this innovative reimagining unfolds as a murder mystery, political thriller, and psychological whodunit. King Oedipus is confronted with legacy, destiny, culture, and language as he uncovers his terrible fate. The show opens September 8th. Book your tickets now at getty.edu. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash leandroehrlich. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Hugh Aiken, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Is the story of modernism's arrival in the United States, which you tell here in Picasso's War, through the lens of Picasso and the people who brought his work to the United States, really a story of global American emergence? And is that why this is a story that matters? I think in a way, it's perhaps in spite of (laughs) American global emergence. If you go back to the beginning of the story, it's precisely... America's obsession with a different kind of art that is happening at the turn of the century. This is the, you know, this is when the architect Stanford White is saying, you know, we're, we're taking a leading place among nations and we have the, abright, the right to obtain art wherever it could be found. And he's talking about old masters. They're emulating the great princes and merchants of Renaissance Europe. And this is the great age of, of robber barons going over and, and buying up Rembrandts and Holbeins and Bellinis. And, and so pictures that turned out not to be Rembrandts and Holbeins, right. at least. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps as importantly, right. And creating this huge, I mean, creating a certain kind of modern art market. I mean, in the sense of modern as in modern commerce, but not <laughs> modern art. So there's this historic unprecedented shift of cultural goods from Europe to the United States happening in these early years. And almost none of it is the exciting new avant-garde art of the day. So it's very closely tied to this emergence, but, but, but the story I'm telling is working against that in, in a sense that it took the insecurity of a young nation was in part what held held the United States back, I think, in those early years, if you're really talking about the great art movements of the 20th century. I think one of the fun parts of the book is that across Picasso's war, we, we see 
a tentative, a nascent American confidence trying to take hold. I mean, you know, this American insecurity vis-a-vis Europe goes back, of course, to the 18th century. With Emerson in the 1830s, we have these intellectuals calling for America to move on and stop being so focused on Europe and stop being retrospective in terms of looking to the American founding generation. And, you know, 100 years after Emerson, that story is is still playing out in this book, in Picasso's War, which which for a history nerd like me is a whole lot of fun. You start your story not only with that great Stanford White quote, that kind of like just ultimately American <laughs> Stanford White quote, but with John Quinn, a New York attorney whom Alfred Barr would later describe in Vanity Fair as, quote, the most emancipated among the great American collectors of modern art, end quote. And you start with Quinn and a painting by Henri Rousseau that is now in MoMA's collection. Why did you start with Quinn and and that painting, and how does it kind of launch us into Quinn and New York's relationship with Pablo Picasso? It seems on the face of it counterintuitive, right? And I, I think that Henri Rousseau is is kind of in, in in a class of his own in this in this group of misfit revolutionaries that are changing the art world in those early years of the century. I think what makes this so appealing as a sort of starting point was was for Quinn this pursuit of a perfect Rousseau painting. And Rousseau, just to remind listeners, of course, he was a kind of, I guess what we would describe today as an outsider, you know, self-taught artist who had this cult following. He was a generation earlier than the kind of Paris school artists. So before World War One, Picasso and his friends had this kind of reverence and ironic relationship with, with Rousseau. And there was this famous banquet where they invite Rousseau and Gertrude Stein and one of the famous ban- most famous banquets of the banquet, the so-called banquet years. And so in the mind of a collector like Quinn, who eventually pursues all of these Paris school artists, having a Rousseau kind of was the, the kind of keystone to this perfect collection that he wanted to put together. And what was sort of this particular painting becomes a motif in the, in the story that unfolds because it wasn't known even among Rousseau fanatics was discovered uh, 20 years after its creation in a coal cellar. And many people didn't disputed its authenticity. It wasn't even considered a Rousseau. But Picasso was one of the first to see this painting, recommends it to Quinn. It becomes the keystone of his collection. Of course, this is the end of his life. He's dying. Quinn is dying. Quinn, yes, Quinn, not Picasso, is dying. And so so this, this to me, was a very appealing way into this story. Uh, we're starting at a certain culmination for this character in, in his sort of project. And so it's longer denouement and, and how it ends up at the Museum of Modern Art unfolds later on in the book. One of the key points is that Alfred Barr, years before he becomes the director of this new museum, sees this great Rousseau and it has a kind of transformative effect on him, which he writes about years later. And uh, Paul Sachs, his mentor at Harvard, writing his own memoirs in the 60s, asked Barr, tell me the greatest acquisition you ever made. What is its story? And Barr tells him the story of how he chased Rousseau's sleeping gypsy and how it came into the the museum collection. So in this one scene, I was trying to capture a little bit the dynamic of, of the larger story that, that would that would unfold. Yeah, I love that you raised the Quinn sleeping gypsy story at the outset of the book and then pay it off much later, like maybe halfway or two thirds of the way through the book. And it's a great example of how there are these little nuggets throughout the book that get raised and paid off later and raised and paid off later. And in this case, it's a great example of how a, a picture, which is now one of the three or four most popular pictures in the first gallery or two of MoMA's permanent collection, involved for Quinn uncertainty and, and risk and taking a chance and how ultimately someone had to kind of talk him into it. And I'll leave that story for the book. You use Quinn as a kind of Janus-like figure, a lawyer to establishment and institutional concerns such as the New York Stock Exchange, as institutional as it gets. But you also present him as a, a cultural disruptor, I think, to use your term. What about 
Quinn's combination of establishment and and white shoe renegade, if you will, <laughs> is useful, important, revealing, and ultimately made him so key to to Picasso's work arriving in the U.S. or, or being established in the U.S. Quinn is is ultimately for me such a beguiling figure because you know <laughs> when you look at his choices, it's improbable. I mean, how is it that the same guy? was buying years before, I mean, we have to consider what, what was, what was being done at the time, you know, years before anyone was really putting together a canon, a canon, let alone the canon that we now sort of, for better or worse, the canon that we have of 20th century art. He was picking out those artists, Matisse, Picasso, Rousseau, Brancusi. And of course, this is a very narrow canon. I mean, what we would, you know, look at critically today you know what this is french modernism but nevertheless he was onto it and he was right i mean most of the time his choices were were and and then you look at literature and you know he supported joyce and pound and t.s Eliot. you know he gets a copy of the wasteland before you know you know Eliot shares it with him in draft form he's the one who's telling alfred knopf what to publish it's just an astonishing mind that is putting this together and supporting it. And then he's this very complicated person who, you know, is, is very much in some sense a man of his own time as much as he's trying to be something completely maverick and, and out there. And so he is. Yeah, he's, a, he's part of this establishment. He works for his living. He makes a lot of money and spends it all. And ultimately, I think there's a kind of success and failure in his story. And it's really interesting to see how his vision kind of crashes in his own lifetime, but ultimately has a kind of long tail in what happens afterward. As, as I read, I kept thinking over and over again, I've seen Quinn's name on the wall at MoMA a thousand times. How had nobody quite done this work? And, and, and here it here it is. How did a velvet-clad, earring-wearing Welshman help Quinn meet Picasso? So the story of, and, and I think this is a story of Quinn's emergence, uh, the, the emergence of uh, the kind of shaping of his taste, because the figure that brings him into this world is a figure today who is, I, I think we would describe as a fairly minor figure in the story of, of modernism, but who in his time was this kind of celebrated contemporary portraitist who was kind of considered a British fauvist or, I mean, he, he wasn't really part of the Parisian movement, but he worked in, in France and he knew a lot of those painters. He apparently visited Picasso the same year of the Demoiselle d'Avignon, summer of 1907. He, in all likelihood, saw it. He admired Picasso's work, but he was no radical himself. He was a kind of society artist who Quinn revered at the time and saw as a kind of entree into this more radical world, which was entirely unknown to him. So for years, more years than Quinn would have liked, I think Quinn ends up supporting him and enduring this very self-absorbed artists, including on this kind of crazy trip through Paris and the south of France, where they're pursued initially by Frida, the Austrian wife of um, Strindberg, who is a kind of just one more character in this world. I mean, she she's kind of creating dramatic suicides, quote unquote suicides, because Augustus won't requite her passion. And she is pursuing them on the train and then on the boat over from Dover to Paris. And Quinn is, meanwhile, preparing for his first sort of encounter with the Parisian art world. And it all sort of goes wrong in the hands of this this Welshman who seems to kind of create chaos wherever he goes. Needless to say, this doesn't stop Quinn. His first inauspicious uh, encounter with the French art world quickly progresses beyond Augustus John, and he does eventually uh, meet the right people. But but I think that, that, that it's also a reminder that the extent to which there's a sort of serendipity to this entire story, that, you know, had things happened differently, he might not have been exposed to that. Uh, even someone as sort of 
progressively on top of the new as Quinn could spend his first, you know, 40 years in entire ignorance of not only Paris school modernism, but even, you know, Impressionism. There just wasn't much of it to be had, not only in the United States, but in, in London and Dublin, which was the Europe that he knew as a kind of Irish-American who was obsessed with Irish and British literature. So the, 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 the international art world in this whole period was, was incredibly divided. And what was happening in Paris was not obviously what was happening in, in London or New York, but also uh, not what was happening in Moscow or Munich. And I think that's part of the story as well, is this, this sense of, of, at least for Quinn, of creating or bringing a culture from another part of the world to New York. As with many stories of the rise of modernism, the story seems to be building to a certain transcontinental and transatlantic triumphalism, and then World War I gets in the way. And that's in every book of the rise of modern art I read. That's, that's always such a major dramatic moment, and it is in this one too. In what ways is it important that Quinn meets Picasso and the Parisian art world? And in what ways is it important to the Parisian art world that they meet Quinn? Well, Quinn actually doesn't meet Picasso, this is interestingly, until after after World War I. So the, the Great War, his sort of an initial history is with modern art is, you know, backing the armory show, becoming fascinated by these artists, start, you know, backing galleries and, you know, some of the modernist journals that were springing up and there was this flowering, trying to change the tax laws of the United States. We're getting to that in a minute. <laughs> so, so, but anyway, he, he, he was fully engaged with this new art years before he actually meets Picasso. And that's interesting too, but personal relationships were hugely important to him. And so he, for many of the artists that he supported, he wrote to them, he made, you know, befriended them, hung out with them and often supported them financially, whether or not he was buying actual works of art. So I think that it was important in this sense that even before Quinn had met Picasso, Picasso was made aware of this singular sort of patron who wasn't just coming in and buying paintings. He was really deeply engaged in the lives and sort of existence of these these artists. And he had, he had this very considerable collection of Picassos by the time he meets Picasso. Same with Matisse. And they're just fascinated to hear about this guy who's got this New York apartment stuffed with these paintings when as far as they know, there isn't really a big American market for their for their work. So I think this connection was immensely important on both sides. It was sort of a driving thing for Quinn to, to actually know the artist and for the artist, the idea that there was this. I mean, Quinn, in a sense, as, as Alfred Bauer later said, Quinn became to Matisse what Shukin had been in the decade before before the war. So, you know, Shukin in Moscow, the great collector who brought Matisse to to his palace in in the center of, of, of Moscow, then disappears from the scene essentially in, in 1914. And that's almost exactly around the moment when Quinn is really getting into the market in a big way. And so that by by the end of the war, Quinn is that figure this faraway figure who is bringing all this art to his, he doesn't have a palace, but uh, his apartment on Central Park West. Even as Quinn is working his way into the European art world, he has some work to do at home. One of those bits of work in the U.S. is Quinn's support of the Armory Show, where he meets a critic who will be important to him personally and to his decision-making. Uh, and, and of course, the story of how he met her is wild. And then the, you mentioned briefly a moment ago, the other thing he had to do was get Congress, um, the U.S. Congress, to change how it effectively taxed the importation of modern art into the United States. 
why does all that why 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 was all of that important to changing the american reception for european modernism well this is a this is a story that in part is known and in part i hope i can bring a, a slightly different perspective on and so so 1913 i think for for people in the art world is this kind of turning point in the american art world and and it, it goes back to this kind of legendary status that the armory show has been given as the sort of, of the starting point and i think part, part of what i i hope to show was that that legend was also the creation of its own backers and you know a lot of the rhetoric that quinn used <laughs> at the time was what became kind of a, a absorbed about this this great show which in fact the the show itself had a, a complicated reception and certainly from the point of view of the market did not really, it, it didn't suddenly overnight turn the United States into this, you know, epicenter of a modern art market. And another event that happened that same year for Quinn himself was in fact far more important. I think he gave more weight to it in his own accounting of his successes and his accomplishments. And this was changing the art tax, as he called it, or the, the campaign for, for free art was another uh, way he described it. And this was how art was taxed that was brought in from abroad. And it seems like a fairly mundane <laughs> side issue, but it turns out to be quite important. And it, just, just, just in a nutshell, the situation in, in 1913 that was prevailing was that art generally was duty-free. And this was a major uh, gift to the kind of Gilded Age collectors that we were talking about, the, and, and, and specifically J.P. Morgan, who had actually threatened to keep his huge collection in England because he would be taxed something like $5 million or $7 million at the time, which is a huge, I mean, it's a, it's a colossal amount. According to earlier turn of the century tax law, which taxed art as a luxury good. So in the, in the aughts, there is this tax reform, which gives duty-free status to historic art, which is all that the Morgan collection was. And then he brings the collection. He spends a year packing it up and it's sent to the United States and a lot of it goes to the Metropolitan. So what was so unusual about this law was that it kept a significant duty on modern art. That is to say, art less than, I believe, 20 years. It's either 50 years or 20 years. And at the time, it, this, this may seem like a kind of a footnote, but no one was buying large quantities of modern art. So this tax didn't really matter to most people, but it had a huge effect on what the market could do uh, in the sense that the avant-garde, the, the tiny circle of avant-garde promoters in New York, people like Alfred Stiglitz, couldn't easily bring in paintings. You know, a lot of those early Stiglitz shows were drawings and watercolors. Including a Picasso. Including the first Picasso show in, in 1911. And this was also a consequence of this, this crazy tax regime. And, you know, going back to 1908, 1909, 1910, Quinn is, is not yet buying really sort of avant-garde stuff, but he's bringing in a lot of contemporary art. He's traveling to Dublin, he's traveling to London, and he's bringing back these, you know, cases of paintings, and, and he's paying a lot of tax. <laughs> he's really irritated about this. And then, you know, I think gradually he gets on to the fact that this is actually essentially stymieing the, the development of a modern art market. And so just as the Armory show is underway and getting underway, these are the early months of 1913, he starts this <laughs> improbable campaign in Washington. You know, he's, he has all these connections to various congressmen and senators. And, you know, Wilson has just come to, coming to office He's not inaugurated till March, but there's this kind of great backstory that Wilson campaigns on tariff reform. It's one of the really major parts of his sort of first hundred days. He's going to come in. There's going to be this huge tariff reform. It was kind of part of the the progressive era idea that you know tariffs were 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 bad, and so 
Quinn gets in there even before the inauguration. Congress is working on this tariff reform, and Quinn is is there saying, "Look, we need to reform the the, the art tax." <laughs> and the idea that this would even matter in Washington is kind of astonishing. This is kind of pre Mellon, pre National Gallery, Washington, too. Pre National Gallery, Washington. You know, you're talking to a, a group. You know, the the leader of the the House and Ways Committee, which is shaping the legislation, is this congressman from Alabama, which I'm sure doesn't at that time have a a major museum. And there's a lot of skepticism too in Washington about even art, whether it should be a luxury good. What what are the merits of of making any art duty free? And so so Quinn launches this improbable campaign, and he's calling in all his friends, and he's rallying museums, and he gets members of the Metropolitan are supporting him, even though they don't care either about modern art. And and his kind of innovation is to say all art should be free. I'm not going to talk about the Armory Show. I'm not going to talk about these radicals that are scaring people in Chicago and Boston. I'm just going to talk about art as education. You know, he, he, he writes these long briefs about you know, the education value of, of European art and how you know, the U.S. alone among the kind of Council of Nations <laughs> is, is taxing art. And art should be like science and like medicine. Intellectual exchange. Yeah. And so he wins. And, and the, the, this is the improbable sort of victory for him in 1913 is by fall, he gets Congress on his side and then Congress and then there's uh, kind of more resistance in the Senate. But eventually the Senate agrees to this. It's not a big deal. No, nobody's really has a cogent reason to oppose it. And he writes the legislation. So Congressman Underwood, who is the chairman of this committee, said, well, we have this lawyer in New York who really knows this subject better than anyone. And it's Quinn that actually writes the tariff law. <laughs> so it's it's one of a number of moments where he comes in and he's actually shaping the legal regime in the United States that, that are a part of the story. A later moment is when he is behind the Trading with the Enemy Act, which actually involves art seizures. So I just found it a very interesting side story that once again reminds us that the shape of, of events was also, you know, related to tax law. Yeah, and, and, the, and in the book, tax law ends up being pretty thrilling. So, I mean, it ends up being thrilling and important, and, and I'm spending way too much time on Quinn because I love all the Quinn stories. <laughs> but I, I want to move to 1921, an exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art of kind of pre-modern art and how there was a nexus of activity around this exhibition to which Quinn loaned work. There was a conservative backlash on one hand, but on the other hand, there were visitors from the ideas industry, including a Princeton professor named Frank Jewett Mather and a student of his that he took to the show. Who was that student and how will the, how was this kind of controversial 1921 exhibition at the Met important to you know what would come along in another part of New York, although initially the same part of New York, a little later on? Well, it, it's another great turning point in the book. And just very quickly on this show, <laughs> it seems such an, an ordinary show, sounding shit show today. It was a lone show, post-impressionists. So, you know, essentially you could say, we look back to, there was this, this the famous um, show in, in London in 1910 and in 1912, that this, this was kind of the, the Roger Fry framing of the modernist story, uh, starting with the, the po- you know, Manet and, and then the, the post-impressionists, and on up to this story was seen as connect, then connecting to the Picasso's generation sort of and ending with Matisse and Picasso. And so that, you know, this is 10 years later, this is 10 years after those London shows. And it's, you know, almost a decade after the Armory show. And we're not talking primarily about 20th century avant-garde art. And Quinn tried to get more of his, you know, <laughs> the, the Metropolitan curator Bryson Burroughs comes to Quinn's apartment to select works for this show. And Quinn is trying to get more Picassos into, 
into the mix. But in the end, they I think there are a few early pre-Cubist Blue Period works that are chosen. So it's really a historic show by this point of, and yet, and this gives you a sense of how controversial this material still is, the show becomes a sort of polarizing moment in the in the United States. And, and by 1921, we're also, for, for non-U.S. listeners, this is an interesting point as well, that the country itself has is moving in this conservative direction. So we're, this is this is in the so-called Red Scare time. There's a lot of concern about communist movements and labor movements that are, you know, run by immigrants from from Eastern Europe, and there's a lot of racial tension in the South. This is, you know, peak years of of lynchings and the Klan, the Second Klan era, yeah, the Second Klan era, exactly. And the third element, which is even sort of more kind of potent in this mix is the liberal establishment is embracing eugenics is a big movement here. And, uh, you know, one of the ironies I found is at the moment of this post-impressionist show at the Met, this is the fall of 1921. I think the second International Eugenics Congress is taking place across Central Park at the National History Museum. So <laughs> there's a very fraught context to this show. And uh, it initially unfolds to really, you know, kind of praiseful reviews and all the art in the show is obviously, as I said, it was a lone show. And yet by the end of the summer, there is this sort of anonymous protest kind of screed that is pamphlet pamphlets that are circulated to newspapers all over the country kind of decrying this this art in language that today we would recognize as this is this is the sort of <laughs> the early years of the Nazi campaign against modern art. So the degenerate Bolshevik <laughs> art has been foisted on the American public by devious cosmopolitan dealers from Europe. You know, code code for Jewish Jewish art dealers, and this attack becomes very virulent, but. I'm digressing here. What what you said rightly was that one of the people that saw this show was a young undergraduate who accompanied uh, Frank Jewett Mather, a Princeton art professor. So he took one of his students to this show, and that student was a young man named Alfred Hamilton Barr, who at the time has very little exposure to modern art. He's just become interested in the art world. He doesn't come from... Uh, money as many of his generation who became involved in in art in the museum world he did, he hadn't traveled widely around Europe and so this visit to this show is a formative moment for him which he later describes as as sort of one of the turning points that that awoke him to to modern art and so another connection that this show interestingly makes with the subsequent rise of a museum, which which Barr will then direct, the Museum of Modern Art, is that along with John Quinn, one of the other lenders, so Quinn is sort of the mastermind of this show, but he gets a group of like-minded collectors in New York, and it's a pretty small group. The other, the other most important one is Lily Bliss, who has this great collection of Cezanne's, She's this heiress who has resources that far outstrip Quinn. Her tastes are, are somewhat more cautious, but she too is a great progressive force at the time. And she will go on, of course, also to have a, a crucial role in the founding of the Museum of Modern Art. So this early show at the Met becomes a kind of turning point for Barr and also for two of the, the figures who I think will have this shaping force a, a decade later when the Museum of Modern Art is, is founded, even as it becomes this kind of polarizing cultural event, which, which the, re, the end result of it is for the Metropolitan that it's almost sort of never again. Like it's, it's years before they're <laughs> yes. showing, showing, you know, post-impressionist. Decades um, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And decades, <laughs> decades until modernism. I mean, it's, Another of the fun things about the book is I think in the last 10 or 20 years, a lot of narrative around MoMA's founding and emergence has been Rockefeller family centric. And this, this book is, you know, breaks that up a good bit. And I want to kind of get to Barr and the 
30s. And I want to kind of cut off before we get to the ending of the book, because one of the fun things about how you've written the book is it's it's super narrative. The story builds to a zenith and an apex and a series of moments. And I want to allow readers to get there. But before that, the 1930s, um, which are complicated. Um, they're complicated for Barr, who at one point you have swimming naked at night with a woman he describes bizarrely as having a fine torso. Um, <laughs> there is the sanitarium movement, as you call it, and Barr's trip to experience it and how that becomes caught up with his further discovery and research into European modernism. And then, of course, there's contemporary politics, as you, you know, geopolitics, as you mentioned a moment ago. So maybe a way of kind of into this period is how did Barr, who had been running a museum of American aristocrats and pseudo-meritocratic elites as much as he'd been running a museum of art, how did Barr respond to the rise of Nazism and how does his embrace of Matisse and Picasso end up kind of being a part of that? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things I found was a theme throughout, and this goes back to the Queen era as well, was the extent to which geopolitics was a, really a shaping force in this entire story. And, you know, all these punctuation points, the, it's, it's amazing too. I mean, the first, the first world war and the second world war have uh, are crucial, not only in shaping what happens in the United States, but also in, in the world of, of the modern art market. I mean, there's the, the parallels of what happened to Picasso's first dealer, Conweiler, and his second dealer, Rosenberg, in the two wars is, is fascinating. But in the United States, what is so interesting is that I think Barr is a unique figure, really, in having directly experienced these, these political up, upheavals that are taking place in other parts of the world. So even before he's director of the Museum of Modern Art, as a graduate student, he travels to Soviet Russia in the winter of 1927, 1928. And this is this just happens to be the moment when, when Stalin is basically taking over and it's the first ideological hardening of the regime. So it's the kind of last flicker of the great Russian avant-garde and he's able to, he leaves this great journal and he experiences this incredible, the, the, the incredible kind of openness and, and, and freedom of, of this early Eisenstein. He, he goes and watches Eisenstein cut film and he sees Meyerhoff, you know, he goes to the theaters and sees these avant-garde works and he meets these artists, but he's also experiencing this kind of chill that suddenly visual art has been more or less kind of purged of, of its avant-garde content, where, where it's, it, the movement to socialist realism has already started. Artists are supposed to have a purpose that's part of this new society. And there's this narrow, rapidly narrowing field. And I think sort of subsequently he, he sees this much more. But this is just the first of his encounters with totalitarianism in art. And just five years later, he happens to be in Stuttgart, Germany, when Hitler comes to power and he and his wife, uh, who is, you know, equally important in this story in many ways, Margaret Scolari Barr, who is Italian, Irish, and actually herself grows up under Mussolini and, and is familiar, you know, is also much closer to European politics, I think, than the other people in Barr's, Barr's American world. So he and Marga are very close to these events. And I think first Russia and then Germany, seeing this happen, were entirely critical to this vision that emerges by the mid-30s and in the late 30s, where Barr is seeing very much a, a kind of political purpose to modern art, even, even and this is important, I think, as, as sort of art historians have so long discussed the sort of the formalism of, of Barr's thinking and you know, the extent to which, you know, in the 30s, he's criticized by Meyer Shapiro, you know, Marxist art historian who is arguing that, no, you can't talk about Cubism without talking about the underlying political context in which it was created. 
Barr has his own politics, nevertheless. And I think by the end of the 30s, and this is sort of the story that I'm, I'm trying to lay out, is that he is seen very much a kind of, <laughs> I think, I think there, there's a great quote by, by, by Philip Johnson, who was very close to Barr in the 30s, even though <laughs> Johnson goes off on a very different tact. Boy, does he. <laughs> but, but he refers to, to Barr's moral socialism. And I think that he has a sense of, of kind of political purpose in defending freedom and artistic freedom. And he, even, he writes about this later, that freedom and truth are kind of central to the whole modernist movement. And I think far more than maybe has been appreciated until now, that that is really important in shaping the extent to which the Museum of Modern Art managed to emerge from this, maybe what seems like a, a kind of socialite project of a few wealthy New Yorkers to a, a kind of national institution with, with a purpose that is about defending a kind of idea of liberal culture. Philip Johnson, of course, famously, as Mark Lamster uh, emphasized in his recent biography of, of Johnson, got way too close to the Nazis. <laughs> so I am, I am doing the thing where I'm talking around the crescendo of, of your book because I think the book kind of reads in some ways, at least has the pacing of a mystery story. And, and I want to leave that intact. But I, I think it's no secret that Picasso never visits the United States. So maybe the best way to wrap up is to ask why not? Another way of, might, of thinking about that might be the sense to which contingency shapes this entire story. And at so many points in the story, things could have gone a different way. And there is a kind of supreme irony in this, that the figure that is in some sense at the center of the story, or at least the story that we have decided to tell, <laughs> is, is, is never directly part of the American story. So... Kind of why the book is good, though, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I find this really, really fascinating. And it raises a lot of questions about what the story is. Is it about the market? Is it about taste? Is it about a certain group of artworks? And I think that one of the really interesting things is, I think without giving away the story, is that the image of Picasso shifts so much in the United States without his ever being there. And so if you look at Picasso in 1921 or 1934, which was the year of another important effort to bring Picasso to the United States, or 1939, it's different than it would be in 1945 at the end of the war. And how did that happen? Hugh Aiken, thanks so much. Thank you. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artist's distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego reopens in La Jolla on Saturday, April 9th, with the special exhibition, Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s. 
The exhibition explores a transformative 10-year period in Saint-Fall's work when she embarked on two of her most significant series, the tears, or shooting paintings, and the exuberant sculptures of women she called nanas. Nikki de Saint-Fall in the 1960s is co-curated and co-organized by Jill Dawsey, Senior Curator, Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, and Michelle White, Senior Curator, the Menil Collection Houston. Welcome back. Next up, Jordan Weber joins me to discuss All Our Liberations, an art installation and space for community learning, reflection, and healing organized by the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. The project, which runs from July 16th, that's this weekend, to July 24th, takes place at the Spring Church near the Pulitzer and St. Louis's Grand Center Arts District. The project includes a three-tiered sculpture Weber made with black obsidian stones and participation from collaborators that Weber met during a 2021 residency. During the week-long program, Weber will host programs for both formerly incarcerated individuals and members of the public. Urban farmers, healers, and organizers from Close the Workhouse, a St. Louis area campaign working to end mass incarceration, are Weber's programming co-host. In April 2023, Weber will expand all our liberation as part of Counter Public, a citywide triennial. Jordan Weber, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you uh, spending some time with me and inviting me onto the show. Your work addresses environmental racism and is often built around gardens and and flora, growing flora, such as in a, in a greenhouse. And you use gardens and places where things grow as a place for healing and repair and, of course, individual sustenance, too. You know, turning the clock way back, what brought you to gardens and growing in the first place? That's a great question, and um, I'm always happy to answer that when people ask. I'm, I'm from North Des Moines, and I always tell people North Des Moines is like a mini Queens. Uh, my high school, 40 or 50 languages spoke at the, at the time, and it's extremely great. And I, I grew up in a pretty low-income household at, at the apartments uh, that I lived in on the north side. And I had an uncle who has land to this day in Milo, which is about an hour south of North Des Moines. And as a kid, you know, it was a simple thing of being dropped off on the countryside and he would put my brother and I in a truck and we'd forest bathe for lack of a better term, right? We would go into the woods and he would identify different tree species to us, you know, by bark, crash courses in poison oak, poison ivy. <laughs> um, crash maybe the, being an operative word. <laughs> right, right. And, and all the things that come, you know, from being a city boy and getting a baptism by fire from things like that. So I would have to say it's a, a really... I would like to think that that's kind of the origins of me getting into activation of green space. My brother is the exact opposite of me, so I don't know how much an effect that has on the human psyche, if that's a case to study. But I would like to think that those are times and times that I really cherish that brought me really into a, a amazing headspace as a kid from the situation that I was in uh, on the north side of Des Moines. So, of course, within your practice, there is stuff growing out of the ground or in a greenhouse, which is actual and literal. But there is also within your work growing things on top of or within damaged ground, wherein the act of growing is a metaphor. I presume that metaphor is intentional. How did you come to start thinking of growing as having metaphorical possibilities that could be the foundation of a practice? I would say. One of the, the main things that sticks out in my head, when you think about the connection of violence on the black and brown body and how it relates to violence on land and violence on landscape in places in the Midwest, like Iowa and Missouri and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Nebraska and Illinois, one of the things that really visually st stuck out to me, and I have this ritual of going to Ferguson when I'm in St. Louis, is seeing and being at Michael Brown protests and seeing Michael Brown's outline, Michael Brown's silhouette and blood on the, the street in Ferguson. And I have chills literally running down my spine, just speaking of it because I have a visual memory of the rage and the lack of support and care and safety that I felt for the real first time in my life as being a person of color in America. And that's when I was really like, 
there is so much trauma and so much bloodshed of black and brown bodies in this country that just soaks and, and is held by land and by the landscapes that we have been forced into. And that's when everything really started to click. So 2014 going into 2015, I would say. Was there something you read or an artist that opened up the metaphorical possibilities therein for you? You know, Rick Lowe is is always the Houstonian of Project Row House's fame. Yes. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Say two Jones in St. Paul, who has got a history of this Mel Chen, who, you know, well, it's your your territory, but he's originally from Houston, Texas, right? Mel, Mel, um, Mel Chen lives near me, which is what Jordan it, is referring to. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. And uh he he actually did a project called Pig Eye uh field in St. Paul. And it was using plants to mitigate toxins and uh, specifically hyper accumulator species of plants. And I started researching that immediately. And one of the early practitioners of that is a professor at the University of Iowa who used trees and, and started the study. One of the major figures, figures who started the study of hyper accumulation and mitigation of pollutants via uh, plant matter. So Mel Chen was really the starting point, and then Rick Lowe was the ignition. And then countless individuals like Setu Jones have been inspiring me and mentoring me and certain pathways and directions to be most effective in that practice and uh, on that course. Let's talk about some of the sites in which you've chosen to work. You've very often chosen to work in sites that have been, air quotes, abandoned. So sites that were once inhabited either by people and then often later by American industry. And so I'm thinking of, for example, the site of Malcolm X's first residential home in North Omaha, which is uh, now a Superfund site due to, I think, lead contamination. Why did a site like that become of interest to you? And I guess I'm asking which side of the history, if you will, was the attraction? Mm -hmm. Definitely Malcolm X and, and, and the things that his family had been through at that site, and definitely the leaving of a home because of the the violence and trauma your family has gone through and also the energy and the space and the size of that landscape which was once once a, a street in north omaha and how nature just naturally took over that site again and it's the self-repaired space where the monarch butterflies stop on their, you know, uh, migration back uh, north from from Mexico. So all sorts of things with the teachings of Malcolm X and his energy and that site and the foundation, but also knowing that not specifically that site, but surrounding that site is one of the largest Superfund sites in a residential area in the U.S. Some of the highest levels of lead that naturally came from the research and just knowing Omaha, like I know Omaha, I have in-laws from Omaha, and I've been going to Omaha since I was a kid. That was just a natural reaction to think about the teachings of self-resilience uh, and Black empowerment through Malcolm X's legacy and what could happen at that site again, and what also the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation has been doing at that site for decades now. What have you done at that site, and what happens within it <laughs> he says leadingly <laughs> so the you know that project is you know one of the keystone projects in my practice and it's been so near and dear to my heart my practice it's been seven or eight years of really grinding away on that project and covid really took a toll on not only that project but the malcolm x memorial foundation so we're really trying to rebuild programs at that site right now and the seedlings the things that were grown pre-pandemic are planted in the Shabazz Gardens that sits about 50 yards away from that site. And it's very much everything you think it is in that in that sense. The seedlings start at the greenhouse. They grow to fruition at the Shabazz Gardens, and then it's dispersed throughout the community and dispersed at the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation. But originally, we had this focus on it being a spiritual site for, for prayer, for Muslim contemplation and practice, Salah prayer, uh, Zazen meditation, and just being at a site with the history of Malcolm X, but also in this vast seven acre green space within our own community. So programs are very diverse. You know, the, the now 
director of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation, Joanna LaFleur, had her wedding there two years ago. There's all sorts of different things that have happened since. There were five, 6,000 individuals that communed and organized to march downtown during the George Floyd protests. That happened at the greenhouse and around the greenhouse. So it's, it's very much becoming a thing that the community wants it to be and has shifted from my original ideas, which is, I feel, how it should, it should be in general with any of these projects. What sorts of things grow at that site in your project in North Omaha or in the site you did in <laughs> right. North Minneapolis? What, what grows and what happens to what grows? What grows at the two sites in North Minneapolis and, and North Omaha, starting with North Omaha, it's mostly your typical vegetables. We had, and we're in the process of creating a really beautiful Three Sisters garden in the back of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation. Uh, corns, beans, and squash with a couple indigenous tribe members from the Omaha tribe, Ponca tribe, and Osage tribe. And that just has not gained steam post-COVID um, like we would like it to. It still exists, but it's not doing what it was designed to do. And we're working on that. But the the North Minneapolis project, there's almost 100% of the species of fruit and vegetables are native to Minnesota in the region. And we have a lot of different bushes, for example, that thrive and produce berries, elderberry, blackberry. And that production lends itself to a lot of indigenous ritual practices, which we had and are still being guided by Missy Whiteman, who's a half Arapaho, half Kikapu, and a couple other members of the Dakota tribe, Austin Owens. So that that's definitely a combination of different species to, for one, mitigate pollution running into the Mississippi River uh, to treat gray water and then also to grow different species of fruits, vegetables, to think and act upon food sovereignty in North North Minneapolis. You know, a few minutes ago, you mentioned violence across the upper Midwest and how your work has engaged with and responded to it. And so this new project in St. Louis, which of course, going back to the early 19th century was the hub of American Westering and imperialism. Seems like it's vaguely appropriate for you to move forward by moving backward historically in a way. And so within the St. Louis project, there are a couple of things I want to ask about. First, you mentioned the importance of faith traditions, I think in Omaha. Here in St. Louis, you're working in a church and you're creating a, a Zen garden. Why is a range, a gamut of faith traditions important to include within the projects, within the work? Right. So the the original structure of that church was to host the practice of the Baptist church. And both in my upbringing and historically in America, uh, especially in the Midwest, baptism is a, a direct identifier of Christianity for Black populations, as a lot of us know. And the garden aspect of, you know, the, the, the idea of pushing in Zen practice has always been central to me being and keeping myself safe mentally. I've been practicing Zazen meditation since I was a senior in high school. Junior in high school, actually, is when I got in, introduced to it. And I know and study after study has shown the benefits of things like, you know, forest bathing and Zazen meditation and contemplative spaces like Zen gardens. And that has always appealed to me and has also appealed to hip hop crews, you know, um, to transition to the Wu-Tang Clan and a lot of Eastern philosophies and practices. And it's a space and a area of practice that I think is extremely universal and can be very easily transitioned to the home. So for example, if you're in a space like Spring Church in St. Louis, and there's different modalities of healing um, that you get trained on at this abandoned Baptist church. We want these things to collide in different modalities so individuals have options to practice and to self-heal continually and consistently. So I, I love the idea of just a range of different things that can help individuals in case they are Muslim or Christian or Jewish or practice different, you know, indigenous rituals or Eastern philosophies. I think it's really important to, to do that and to offer that. I think within the history of the site too, Spring Church has hosted four different congregations over its lifetime. 
weird, weird to speak of a building as having a lifetime when it doesn't have a roof anymore, but <laughs> you know what I mean? So within the St. Louis project will be a, a three-tiered sculpture made with black obsidian stones, which is material you've used before, albeit in, in, in different forms. How do you think through placemaking and odd object making and whether there is or needs to be a relationship between the two? I love the relationship between the two. If I can, if I can place the relationship naturally, we know the history of obsidian. We know it's been used as a tool. We know it's been used as, you know, a spiritual material for pushing away um, negative energies. And that has been something just absolutely intriguing to me in my practice, uh, because I know, for one, it's a really beautiful material. It draws people to it. But I also love the idea of materials and artworks being broken down if things really get bad. So if, for example, Things keep going like they're going in the U.S. and we really have to uh, rely on ourselves to do the things we need to do to, to do to survive. I love the idea of sculptures being broken down in some sort of utilitarian aspect. So that's just yet another reason to use obsidian. I, I, I geek out about it quite a bit. And, you know, the, the idea of using locally sourced material is is very important. This obsidian comes from Colorado originally, but I first sourced it south of Minneapolis, which which seems extremely symbolic, given the murder of George Floyd and all things Minneapolis in general and St. Paul and the history of, you know, activism. And I like dragging material from one project that had a lot of meaning into a different project uh, while I'm thinking about placemaking, because most importantly in my mind, and especially in the Midwest, we think about historically and, and currently how Minneapolis to St. Louis, that most things are tied, whether trauma or resources or movement of brown and black folk up and down the Mississippi. So material from Minneapolis that are originally sourced, you know, and being used again in St. Louis um, is very intriguing to me when we're thinking about when we're, when we're thinking about natural materials used in projects. And a lot of my projects are based around the Mississippi and water quality and, and mitigation of toxins because we know what happens with toxins once they hit the Mississippi. And most of them are coming from the Midwest as well. So there's definitely a flow and a connection between placemaking and, and material in my work. And when I hear you talk about obsidian in Minnesota, I think of the 1862 Sioux uprising as well. Right. And a lot of that informed and the missteps of individuals in Minneapolis since have, have informed my, my project pretty heavily in Minneapolis. I have a long history of Minneapolis and knowing all the things and all the damages that have happened because of uh, the missteps of other artists and because of that case. And there's also a lot of other history of Dred Scott meeting his partner at Fort Snelling and the history of Dred Scott going up and down the Mississippi. I mean, it's it's a pretty powerful region when you start looking back, as is all of America. But my specific connection to the Midwest, the Mississippi um, becomes more and more intriguing the deeper you look into the history of, of American oppression upon, you know, the, the Black, Brown and Indigenous community and body. The Pulitzer Project includes an address of incarceration and includes within it engagement with formerly incarcerated people. Do you think of your work as having addressed incarceration before? Because one could sort of argue the Malcolm X project. Right. I mean, the Malcolm X project, definitely the opening day, there's a, you know, a halfway house for formerly incarcerated individuals that we fed in the bread breaking. And of course, Malcolm X himself was incarcerated. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I have to have to say this and I don't often talk about this, but Sundays, every Sunday for about three years when I was in middle school, we would go about an hour and a half east of Des Moines to visit my uncle in prison. And for one, totally traumatizing to leave one of your closest uncles behind as a kid every Sunday, one who grew up around us quite, quite often, quite a bit. And disallowing of movement. Right. The, the disallowing of movement of somebody so young and and understanding that not only you, but your peers around you have and are in the same situation that to visit somebody's loved ones, you must also move. And to visit somebody's loved ones, you realize that they are unable to move, which is why you have to go to them. And that's that process of freedom 
has taken a more spiritual, you know, path in my practice, I would say. How, if we aren't incarcerated in an institution, how do we spiritually decompress when we are dealing with all the things America upon ourselves and our communities? And that is something that I feel like I'm I'm just naturally and to be to be honest with you, my collaborators are just naturally fighting against because it's part of the oppressive regime of you know state sanctioned violence not only now but historically in the, in the in the US and I'm doing a similar project on the Hudson Matt Bard right now at Montgomery Place working with the Bard Prison Initiative we don't know exactly how but it just keeps naturally coming up when we think about reentry and the impacts on our community that that individuals can have who have been stripped from their potential at such a, a young and early age I'm trying to make that more of a focal point as I get older. Are there ways in which that experience from childhood has informed or, or your processing of it has, has informed the St. Louis project? I think my my origins of working in St. Louis, you know, you know, post Michael Brown and Ferguson, it's always been, especially with James at the Luminary, has always been connected with the uh, Close the Workhouse campaign. And I am one of the most loyal individuals you you will ever meet. I'm fiercely, fiercely loyal. And when I start working with a nonprofit or an organization and it, it's doing all the work that I dream and aspire to do, I have a tendency to stick with them to try to help out, um, do my part in some way, shape or form. So that that's the origins of the St. Louis working with formerly incarcerated individuals was that initial approach with James and myself to do an exhibition to help and and promote the the message of close the workhouse campaign in St. Louis. And all that is also stemming from, like I said before, seeing the shadow of Michael Brown on the street in Ferguson and just knowing the history of Ferguson and, you know, ticketing and the gelling process um, in St. Louis. It's one of the most horrific in, in the U.S. So all those things are just naturally, I think, a, a guiding light to to continue doing work in the criminal justice field in, in St. Louis. In closing, is this eight or nine day project at Spring Church in St. Louis the only work you're doing in St. Louis or is there more coming? There's more coming. So we're doing, uh, I'm a part of Counter Public Triennial, founded by James as well in 2023. And that's going to be to activate a larger site in collaboration with Peace Park and the Green City Coalition in uh, North St. Louis and the Black Healers Collective in St. Louis, a very close homegirl of mine, Shiraz, and closed the workhouse and countless other organizations that are doing really great work around Peace Park and around uh, North St. Louis. So I, I will be back and forth between the East Coast and St. Louis for the next two years, I, I would say, doing more work and can, trying to continue the work of the Pulitzer Project uh, in, in uh, St. Louis. Can't wait. Jordan Weber, thanks so much. Yes, thank you for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.